Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, February 26, 2010. You know, it's um, frightening how proficient I've become at shoveling snow. <laughs> yeah. Um. And I get to do more of it. Yay! <laughs> you know what? I think we need to stop worrying about global warming. I, I think we need to worry about the great big glaciers that are going to be covering the northern part of the Midwest and the New England states over the next decade or two. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. Now, uh, Friday, it's it's Friday, and ooh, second week in a row, I know this is going to sound like just crazy talk to you, but second week, week in a row, week, 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 <clears throat> me, 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 ha, <clears throat> yeah, I got to get that thing out of my throat. <clears throat> All right, second week in a row where we've done Friday light on Friday. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's unspeakable. Anyway, um, <laughs> well, today's uh, Friday light edition of Fighting for the Faith, in case, you, in case you're new to the program and you're going, what's Friday light? Friday light is where, rather than me commenting on news or reading email and doing sermon reviews, we stick to a singular topic. And what I try to do is find good lectures uh, from people that I consider to be in the general fraternity of evangelicals, uh, and, and I mean his, historic evangelicals, those who actually hold to uh, the, uh, the basically e historic evangelical reformation uh, theology and confessions. So, and the idea is find a good topic, a good lecture on a great topic that uh, really hammers out or or helps us understand the scriptures better. And the guy preaching it generally should have, um, you know, generally, uh, should be a good guy, not a guy wearing a black hat and, uh, and shouldn't, you know, somebody who's not, it's, we're not able to pin down what they actually believe, but somebody who publicly confesses uh, uh, biblical, uh, historic biblical Christianity. Today, uh, Al Moeller of uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary will be, uh, our, who will be the man who will be lecturing. And this is from his uh, 2008 uh, uh, conference keynote address from the Together for the Gospel conference, which, by the way, is coming up again in uh, April uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. If you go to t4g.org, t4g.org, you can get details on how you can register for this conference. 
Um, I, I I doubt that I'm going to be able to make it. But that being said, um, there's some good stuff being done at these conferences, and uh, and you know, worth passing along. And so I'm going to take uh, Dr. Mueller's 2008 conference keynote entitled "Why Do They Hate It So: The Doctrine of Penal Substitution." And that will uh, basically be our Friday light edition of Fighting for the Faith. Dr. Mueller, always well-spoken, well-read, just a, he's a, uh, a good theologian, a good scholar, and uh, a man that I consider to be, a, a, I'm thankful to ca- call a Christian brother. And uh, so without any further ado, here is Dr. Al Mueller on why do they hate it so, the doctrine of penal substitution. Thank you, Mark. I hope you sense that a part of what we really exult in together in this is the opportunity for us to be together and a part of our hope for you is that you will develop lifelong friendships of those who share the same calling because that is one of God's richest gifts to those who carry the responsibility of preaching and teaching the Word of God it is to have friends who have the same calling and are fueled by the same passions and are excited by the same convictions and are burdened by the same concerns. And so a part of what we hope to do through this movement is to share a friendship with you. It is good to be in the presence of 5,000 of our closest friends in that light because your presence here says something very significant. The title of this conference is Together for the Gospel. That clearly comes with implications in terms of why we would choose such a name. It means, first of all, that we are together. That's always good. But there are a lot of groups that are together that are together for all the wrong reasons. And frankly, there are people who love the gospel who, well, they aren't together. We wanted to be together for the gospel. This means that the gospel is the overriding concern of all other concerns that would bring us to this place. It means that we want the gospel to be what draws us here, and it means we want the gospel to be what sends us out, a passion for the gospel, to see the name of Christ famous among the nations, to see sinners rest in Christ and trust in Him. We did not conspire in in terms of exactly what each of us would speak about. A part of the fact that we respect each other's friendship is we basically say, come and do what you want to do. Which is a good thing because that's what we would do anyway. (laughs) But when you look at how this conference has proceeded, it's very clear that there is a progression that has been building. It would have been worth the trip here just to have heard any one of the messages heretofore. But I found myself just in exaltation over the display of the gospel this afternoon from Dr. Sproul. And thus, as he gave us such a marvelous demonstration and exposition of the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, I want to ask you, who would not thirst and hunger for that? Reflecting on Acts chapter 16, verse 26... Charles Wesley read the text and suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. And as he was so often led to do, it led him to write a hymn. It's a hymn we love, a a hymn we sing, a, a hymn that we will soon sing 
as we find reason to rejoice in the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1739, Charles Wesley wrote these words, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die? For me, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free. For, oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne. And claim the crown through Christ, my own. That one hymn is like a short, poetic, lyrical exercise in systematic theology. It's also a word of testimony. It is a narrative that contains propositional truth. The truth of the gospel is proclaimed, but it's not an abstract truth. Those who sing this song sing in the first person singular. I pursued him to death. How can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? It's hard for us to imagine this. But it is necessary for us to recognize that there are those who hate the words the images, and the truth claims that are contained within that hymn. Some of you know that the seminary I lead has been through a process of a complete transformation that was made necessary because of a theological crisis. Thus, we as an institution and the churches to whom we belong must sing a song very similar to this as by God's grace and mercy an institution was recovered. I'm often asked why it was necessary. And my answer to that is necessarily autobiographical for I was a student at the seminary and that's how I learned where the problem was and its magnitude. On the very first day of my studies, in the very first class, in the very first hour, the professor, having introduced the syllabus for the class, then asked every member of the class in turn to identify by name and by home state and to state the reason why we were taking this class in New Testament studies. As the line wound around chair to chair, desk to desk, it finally came to a young woman who was there to study 
to be a missionary in the foreign fields, international fields of service. She mentioned her name. She mentioned her home state. And when answering the question why she was taking this class in New Testament studies, she said she was taking it because she wanted to know more about Jesus Christ and his shed blood. The professor exploded. I was unprepared for this. The class was unprepared for this. He said, there will be no more bloody cross religion in this classroom. Is this understood? He said, that is not tolerated. He said, it is beneath dignity and self-respect to believe in a God who had to kill in order to forgive. Our seminary was established in 1859. The very first commencement, a hymn was written, which is our seminary hymn, has been sung at every commencement since then. It's entitled, Soldiers of Christ in Truth Arrayed. It's a wonderful hymn. The first line goes like this. Soldiers of Christ in truth arrayed. A world in ruins needs your aid. A world by sin destroyed and dead. A world for which the Savior bled. Or at least that's how the hymn's first stanza read until the mid-1970s. When the word bled was changed to died. A world by sin destroyed and dead. A world for which the Savior died. Soon after I became president... The hymn was changed again. And the Southern Baptist Convention was at that time printing a new hymnal and they included this hymn. And they changed it from died back to bled. A faculty member of the old regime came up to me and was quite pleased with this. I was surprised that he was pleased, but I was pleased that he was pleased. And as he was speaking to me about why he was pleased, well, all my pleasure fell away. Because this is what he said. He said, you know, he said, I'm so glad they changed that. He said, I know you're glad they changed that. He said, it was such awful poetry. <laughs> well, the Lord does move in mysterious ways. The resistance to any reference to the blood of Christ any reference to the wrath of God, any reference to a penal substitutionary atonement, this is something that is all around us. And it is not new. Of course it isn't new. But I want to note that when we ask the question, why do they hate it so, the focus of my concern tonight is not why the unregenerate hate it so. It's why would some who would at least claim to be Christian Hate it so. The controversy is not new. Of course, it goes back to controversy over the atonement, as we shall see in centuries past. But it is interesting to note that there are certain milestones in our more recent years of controversy. On May the 21st, 1922, Harry Emerson Fosdick, then pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of New York City, rose to deliver the most famous sermon of his entire career. The sermon was entitled, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? 
And well into that sermon, he complains about the fact that the fundamentalists want to define Christianity in terms of certain definite doctrines and doctrinal boundaries, which he, as a self-conscious liberal, wanted to reject. Interestingly enough, by the way, he wanted to claim the name, the title, evangelical. He said this, it's interesting to note where the fundamentalists are driving in their stakes to mark out the deadline of doctrine around the church, across which no one is to pass except on terms of agreement. They insist that we must all believe in the historicity of certain special miracles, preeminently the virgin birth of our Lord, that we must believe in a special theory of inspiration, that the original doc documents of the scripture, which of course we no longer possess, were inherently dictated to men a good deal as a man might dictate to a stenographer. That we must believe in a special theory of the atonement, that the blood of our Lord shed in a substitutionary death placates an alienated deity and makes possible welcome for the returning sinner. He goes on. But it is interesting to note that back in 1922, at least, it was well understood that the doctrine was opposed not within any movement that would be legitimately described or defined as evangelical, but without, and as a matter of fact, those who were without would complain that those who were within were making this doctrine of substitutionary atonement a dividing line. In more recent years, it has also been this way. As recently, though, as 19, in the 1970s, J.I. Packer, writing the essay Dr. Dever mentioned, on the logic of penal substitution could describe the penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement as, and I quote, a distinguishing mark of the worldwide evangelical fraternity. He wrote that with confidence. Later in another essay you will find in this book presented to you tonight, you will find that he says for the entirety of his ministry, the issue of substitutionary atonement has been of controversy, but it's clear within the context of that statement, he meant in the larger theological world. But now it has come to be far closer. The antipathy to the idea of a penal substitutionary atonement is sometimes presented in such blatant form it's impossible not to get the point. In November of 1993, a conference was held in Minneapolis entitled Reimagining God. At that conference, Professor Dolores S. Williams of Union Theological Seminary in New York City said, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff, end quote. This same Dolores Williams has made a focus of the doctrine of atonement and the fact that there need be no doctrine of atonement. She clearly believes in no God who is holy and just to require a penalty for sin. Furthermore, she doesn't believe in sin in the categories that are even remotely biblical. She says that forgiveness does not come through blood sacrifice, but through compassion and solidarity. At another conference shortly after the one in Minneapolis, she asked this question, how do we stay in relationship with those who still find meaning in the blood? We look at all of this and try to put it together. It is important for us to put this in the framework of the larger project of theology, an understanding of the work of Christ, its meaning, and the means of its appropriation. It's important for us to understand that when we're thinking about theologies of the atonement, we are thinking generally in terms of two great categories, the objective and subjective. The objective understandings of the atonement 
are centered in the fact that what must change is God's disposition towards sinners. Something objective must take place, a change in how God looks to humanity. Okay, this is important. One of the primary points about the doctrine of penal substitution or the vicarious atoning sacrifice of Christ is that it first and foremost doesn't make a change in the human being, but it makes a change in God. We human beings, because God is just and he is and he punishes and rightly judges sin and rebellion against him, that therefore something has to change God in the sense of his attitude towards us. His justice must be satisfied. So in the objective sense, Christ, his death on the cross, his substitutionary death satisfies God's justice. And now God, God looks on us not according to what we deserve, but according to love on account of what Christ has done. That's, this is critical. Let's, let's continue. ...who are covered by the blood of Christ. Subjective understandings of the atonement hold that the key issue is the sinner's disposition toward God. That what must change is something internal to the sinner. The sinner must change his, must change her understanding of God in order to be more accepting of the God who would send or who would allow Christ to die upon the cross. In one sense, we need to recognize that there is a false dichotomy between the objective and the subjective in a wholesome biblical frame of biblical theology, which is to say, if you believe in an objective atonement of necessity, you will also believe in its subjective appropriation and the experience of the one who comes to faith in Christ. But we will come to the understanding that there can be nothing meaningful in terms of anything subjective if it is not first grounded in the prior objective reality of the atonement achieved by Christ. In the 11th century, Anselm wrote, Cur Deus Homo. Why did God become man? Why the incarnation? He did argue for an objective understanding of the atonement, but not quite for substitution. But it was substitutionary enough that Abelard, Peter Abelard, the century later, would repudiate even that understanding based upon the recovery of God's honor by presenting a moral influence theory of the atonement in the 12th century. Abelard argued that there could be nothing in the atonement that would bring about a change in God, that it must be entirely one that was directed at the human and at the human understanding of God. Let's get this straight. We're either singing the truth or a lie. This either is the gospel or it is not. Right. Either this is or it isn't. There's no middle-of-the-road position. Either Christ died for our sins, and the church was purchased by his blood, as the scriptures say, that's the gospel, or it isn't. What we're, you know, this whole penal substitutionary thing, it's a lie. One or the other, no middle of the road. And this liberal gobbledygook, oh, these are theories of the, oh, that's just obfuscation to blur the reality. 
The dividing line is abundantly clear. We either believe that the sum and substance of the gospel is that a holy and righteous God who must demand a full penalty for our sin both demands the penalty and provides the penalty through his own self-substitution in Jesus Christ, the Son, whose perfect obedience and perfectly accomplished atonement has purchased for us all that is necessary for our salvation, has met the full demands of the righteousness and justice of God against our sin. We either believe that or we do not. If we do not, then we believe that the gospel can be nothing more than some kind of message intended to reach some emotive level in the human being so that the human being would think better of God and might want to associate with him. Or we would transform all of these categories from the theological into the merely therapeutic and argue that the whole point of the atonement is that we would come to terms with our own problems and come to understand that there are resources for the repair of our troubled souls beyond which we previously knew. Or we would make of the atonement the merely political, that it is to send some kind of signal both to God's people as they would define themselves into the larger world. It is important that we understand that the central thrust of the Scripture, though, is undeniable. That is one of the great accomplishments of the work that has been done in this field, some of which we will review one of the most crucial of these works you were given, the Pierce for Our Transgressions book. If you will deal with it, if you will read it, if you will honestly reflect upon it, if you will work through the biblical text, it will become a matter of unrefutable truth that the central thrust of the Scriptures concerning the atonement is that God demanded a punishment for sin and requires it by His own holiness and justice and that He provided it in Jesus Christ who died on our behalf paying in full the penalty for our sin, not only associating himself with our sin, but becoming sin for us in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We come to understand that not only is this the central thrust of the Scriptures, the gospel as defined and presented in the Scriptures is reaffirmed and preached in the Reformation and in the tradition that became known as the evangelical tradition and the evangelical movement We come to understand that the atonement for sin is first objectively accomplished for those who come to faith in Christ through the perfect sacrifice of Christ and the full satisfaction of God's righteousness. We understand that this atonement is subjectively experienced by the believer through redemption and through union with Christ. We understand that this atonement is divinely applied by the Holy Spirit who convicts the soul of sin, opens and quickens the eyes and the soul to see and to believe, and then sets his seal upon the believer. Through the preaching of the word, means of grace here, means of grace. There is a growing antipathy and resistance toward the idea that there's any objective dimension, any objective understanding of the atonement, that is necessary, or even that is fitting. And we need to note that this controversy is now no longer in a distant neighborhood, it is in our neighborhood. 
J.I. Packer suggests that there are three main accounts of Christ's death and its meaning. We might call these three general groupings of theories of atonement. If we were to try to exhaust all the different metaphors and models of atonement, not only in the scripture but in the history of, of even a more classically orthodox Christian theology, it would be far beyond the limitations of our time, not only in this hour but in these days. But it is important to see that there are at least three clusters of understandings that have been presented throughout the history of the church. Okay, I'm going to pause right there. We're going to take our first break, and when we come back, we're going to hear J.I. Packer's, well, Muller giving us J.I. Packer's three clusters of understanding regarding uh, Christ's death on the cross and his atonement. Uh, important stuff that he's going to be bringing out and bringing to bear here, and you're going to see how they all play into this concept, though, that the penal substitutionary aspect is really the central linchpin of the whole thing, so you don't want to miss that. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Switching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel. You see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally. We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon. I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule. Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio.
The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. If you want to come up with your own ideas about what Christ was doing on the cross, we're going to shoot that down using the Bible and replace it with the objective penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. All right, I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. Will you partner with us? Yeah, you can actually partner with us, and we've made it really easy to do so. In fact, practically financially painless, if you would. And uh, what I mean by that is is that uh, we are in the middle of a drive to get uh, a 1,000 of our listeners to join the Pirate Christian Radio Fighting for the Faith crew. Now, we're a little over halfway to our goal, and uh, it, it's a mere $6.95 a month. $6.95. I mean, we're talking one extra value meal at Burger King or uh, McDonald's. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. A month. That's it. Painless. And when you join, as our way of saying thank you, you get access to the Pirate Christian Radio Cove, a growing treasure trove of historical, theological, and apologetic resources designed to help you grow deeper in God's Word and an understanding of the of the Scriptures that's Christ-centered. So that, that's the bonus for uh, for joining the crew. Again, the way you do this is you visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, and then pay close attention because at the last screen after you're, you're, you're signing up for the crew, there's a button that says click here to access the pirate cove. And so make sure you click on that, take down the information, and then you'll, you'll be given the secret coordinates and password to entering our pirate cove. So good stuff that we've got going on there. And I'm getting ready to put uh, some more resources up. Uh, my two webinars on Christology and, uh, we got some more stuff coming up there from, uh, Jay Gresham Machen and others. So you don't want to miss that. All right, and of course, if you'd like to uh, donate, uh, you know, kind of fill in the blank method, uh, you, you, you write in the amount. The way you do that is by clicking on the Donate button on our website, and then you can fill in how much you would like to contribute. And then, uh, if you, of course, if you'd like to do it the traditional way, you can. Uh, we're, we're all for that. And the way you do it is make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six. Zero three eight. All right, we're going to continue with our lecture from uh, Al Muller, 
from the 2008 Together for the Gospel uh, Conference, and he's uh, talking about why they hate uh, the doctrine of penal substitution and where we left off. He's about ready to uh, lay out J.I. Packer's three main clusters of understanding regarding Christ's atonement. Here we go. The first, Packer suggests, is that the cross has its effect entirely on humanity. The second is that the cross has its effect primarily on hostile spiritual forces. And the third, that the cross has its effect first in God, who propitiated himself and found full satisfaction in the atonement of Christ. Now, as Packer suggests, the third includes dimensions of one and two. In other words, not that it was entirely to have an effect on humanity, but that it does of necessity because of the fact that the atonement accomplished means that persons actually do come to faith in Christ. It does have a necessary human dimension. We also, it does include the fact that the atonement accomplished by Christ does indeed free us and declare the victory from hostile spiritual powers. But even as the penal substitutionary view of the, of the atonement can include elements from the other groupings, the other groupings have primarily been originated in an effort to deny a penal substitutionary, even at times, an objective understanding of the atonement. Okay, that's an important point. Yes, there are. Think of the atonement, Christ's death on the cross, as being multifaceted. But most of these other theories that have been put out as theories, they have been basically put out in order to suppress the truth of penal substitution. And it is a way of saying, oh, I, I subscribe to that theory. I don't subscribe to penal substitution. I just subscribe to this theory of the atonement. And the thing is, is that the, the, the Bible actually provides us with a multifaceted view of what Christ was doing on the cross. That being said, they all hook into uh, the primary one, penal substitution. Look at Isaiah 53. And, of course, the book he's referencing is Pierce for Our Transgressions, which is just a fine, fine, fine uh, work. And if you don't have it, you should get it. Anyway, we continue. In Mark Dever's article originally published in Christianity Today, found also in the book you find in your chair, he suggests that the models of the atonement, and I think he's very helpful here, refer to three different sets of, of questions. Or three different problems. The, the first problem is the assumption that humanity's great problem is that we are trapped and opposed by spiritual forces beyond our control. Is that true? Of course it's true. Is that the central thrust of the atonement? No. There are those who believe that the central problem is the subjective need of humanity to know God's love for us. Is that a legitimate need? Is that a true need? Is it accurate? Of course it is. Is that the central thrust of the atonement? Of course it's not. The third assumes that the main problem is God's righteous wrath against us for our sinfulness, which puts us in danger of eternal punishment. Interestingly, I want to cite for you, as we talk about the penal substitutionary view of the atonement, I want to use a definition that is strategically chosen. This definition is from I. Howard Marshall. The definition came in the midst of controversy, as we shall see, within the Evangelical Alliance in Great Britain. 
Dr. Marshall suggests very helpfully that the penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement comprises two thoughts. First of all, humankind is condemned to eternal death as the penalty imposed by God upon human sin. No matter how much or how little we may have sinned, there is a fixed penalty for all sinners, namely eternal death, of which physical death is both a part and a symbol. Hence arises the theological term penal. Secondly, Dr. Marshall says, the death of Christ on the cross was not merely a physical death, but also the eternal death due to sinners, suffered on this occasion by one who was sinless, and therefore not because of his own sins, but because of his voluntary bearing of the death that was due to other people because of their sins. His death was thus instead of their death, and consequently those who accept him as their Savior are freed from the penalty of their sins. He has died instead of them, and hence arises the use of the theological term substitution. True, they still die physically unless they survive to the second coming and are transformed as a living people rather than raised from the dead. But they do not die eternally because Christ has died instead of them and God will not require a penalty twice, as it were. Now, the reason why I chose that definition is not because I find it the most satisfactory or comprehensive. The reason I chose that definition quite strategically is to indicate, because I, Howard Marshall, is not from a Reformed tradition, that the doctrine of substitution is at least well understood as a part of the central evangelical tradition. It has been of importance to those who would classify themselves as those who are the people of the cross. I do believe that the way he divides the question between penal and substitutionary is helpful. But we must always realize that, as presented in Scripture, it is both penal and substitutionary. Efforts to divide the two as if it can be penal without being substitutionary or substitutionary without being penal make no sense. The rejection of a penal or substitutionary understanding of the atonement goes well back in terms of the history of the church, but most specifically, I want to focus on the Reformation era, where Faustus Paolo Sozzini, known as Socinus, 16th century, opposed any understanding of the atonement that had any operation whatsoever upon God. The atonement, he said, must operate on humanity alone. When you look at Socinus, we need to understand that he becomes a model for our understanding of the larger problem, and that is that the repudiation of a penal substitutionary view of the atonement is virtually never alone. It has systematic ramifications. The denial of a substitutionary understanding of the atonement, the denial of God's righteousness and his justice, the, the denial of a penal requirement in terms of God's response to sin because of his justice and righteousness, all of this has a series of ramifications throughout the entire system of theology, and rarely is that made more clear than with Socinus, who was a heretic on more than one count. Interestingly, debate over the substitutionary character of the atonement certainly emerged in English-speaking theology on both sides of the Atlantic in the 19th century and then into the 20th century. In the United States, figures such as Horace Bushnell argued against any kind of objective understanding of the atonement in a way that, that foresaw the coming of a classically liberal theology in the United States, he argued that it was a human-centered, horizontal theology that had to do with the fact that we were to learn from the self-sacrifice of Christ the nature of true love. James McLeod Campbell, Charles Finney, Vincent Taylor, and a series of others on both sides of the Atlantic were engaged in intentional revisionism 
and an effort to reformulate a doctrine of atonement that would take away the scandal of substitution would accomplish what others have sought to accomplish, and that is the removal of any bloody cross religion. Our discussion must look at 1936 when C.H. Dodd, British New Testament scholar, wrote a book entitled The Apostolic Preaching and Its Developments. And crucially in this book, C.H. Dodd sought to further this argument, especially on lexical grounds, seeking to argue that the word propitiation had no place in the New Testament, even in terms of translation. He was very influential in some translations of the Scripture, in particular the New English Bible and that tradition of of Bible translations which do not even include the word propitiation. I cannot summarize his argument here other than to say straightforwardly that his effort was to remove the scandal of any penal substitutionary understanding of the cross by redefining the work of Christ so that it was merely an expiation. Again, Dr. Sproul gave a wonderful explanation of this fact. Leon Morris came along in 1955, published his doctoral dissertation done at Cambridge University. His book was entitled The Apostolic Preaching of the cross. He was later warden at Tyndale House and principal at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. He probably did more than any single evangelical in the midpoint of the 20th century to reset the discussion. And he did so in two ways. The first way was to go directly at the errors of C.H. Dodd's work in terms of the language and the grammar of the New Testament. He demonstrated that it was incredibly dishonest, although he used typical British reserve. He would not have actually used that word. But if you read the footnotes, that's what he's saying. (laughs) He accused C.H. Dodd of borrowing some ideas and basically inventing others in order to argue that the words cannot mean what they appear to mean. But Leon Morris also came back and made an interesting argument as he argued that propitiation presumes and includes expiation so that it is not an either-or. The reality is not only did Christ become the penalty for us, as we know from the Scripture, he became the curse. He also, of course, satisfied by taking our sins away. In 1973, Dr. Packer wrote his essay, What Did the Cross Achieve? The Logic of Penal Substitution. It was presented as a Tyndall Lecture. It was presented in such a way that it was a call because, as Dr. Packer later reflected, He detected that even among some who would call themselves evangelicals, there was an uneasiness. There was a sense, perhaps, of of theological and dogmatic and biblical insecurity about the doctrine. And thus he wrote one of the clearest expositions, certainly found in the evangelical tradition, of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. From the 1970s on, it became clear that Dr. Packer's concern was well-grounded. Revisionist evangelicals throughout the 1980s certainly sought to revise the entire model and project of evangelical theology, but in so doing, they wanted to bring evangelical theology into a trajectory that would be free from so many of the scandals associated with the truth claims that it identified evangelicals in times past. The substitutionary atonement was one of these most clearly. We fast forward to 1994 when Clark Pinnock and Robert Brow wrote a book entitled Unbounded Love, the subtitle A Good News Theology for the 21st Century. Published by InterVarsity Press, this book very clearly took as its aim to redefine the entire project of evangelical theology, insinuating that the classic model of evangelical theology which included doctrines such as the inerrancy of Scripture and substitutionary atonement, was, in their words, a bad news theology. 
What was needed was a good news theology, and the only way to turn a bad news theology into a good news theology was, well, they called it a new reformation that was needed in order to completely redefine the doctrine. We will hear from them again soon. But they did say this in 1994. They said, we have to overcome the rational theory of the atonement based in Latin judicial categories that has dominated Western theology. They went on and said, we must realize that Jesus did not die in order to change God's attitude towards us, but to change our attitude to God. The same publisher, InterVarsity Press, had published in 1986 John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. In that book, Dr. Stott, just eight years previous, had written this. We strongly reject, therefore, every explanation of the death of Christ which does not have at its center the principle of satisfaction through substitution. In, indeed, he, he said, divine self-satisfaction through self-substitution. The same publisher, InterVarsity Press, six years after publishing Pinnock and Brow, published a book by Joel Green and Mark Baker entitled Recovering the Scandal of the Cross. In that book, they argue in early chapters that their effort is to encourage evangelicals to supplement a penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement with other models. By the time you get to the center of the book, it is clear they do not want to supplement the doctrine of substitution, but to replace it. The language is unmistakable. In 2003, just three years after the publication of Recovering the Scandal of the Cross by Green and Baker, the Lost Message of Jesus was published in Great Britain by Steve Chalk and Alan Mann. The book was endorsed by figures such as N.T. Wright and Brian McLaren. In this, the authors argued that the cross is not, they said, a form of cosmic child abuse, a terminology they associated in their description of the substitutionary atonement. Some early reviewers of the book tried to indicate that in using this language, Chalk and Mann were not saying that they believed that substitutionary atonement was indeed a form of divine child abuse, but through subsequent clarifications, the authors have made clear that that is indeed what they meant. A controversy ensued within the Evangelical Alliance in Great Britain. In 1970, the Evangelical Alliance had adopted a basis of faith which included this, it said the substitutionary sacrifice of the incarnate Son of God as the sole all-sufficient ground of redemption from the guilt and power of sin and from its eternal consequences, end quote, was a necessary part of their confessional basis. Obviously, even as some of the authors of these books, in particular Steve Chalk, was a member of the Evangelical Alliance, has called into question the membership standards of the organization. It led to an extensive controversy. Interestingly, if you followed this, you would be aware that there were two schools historically identified with the training of evangelical pastors there in Great Britain who became centers of opposing views in terms of the acceptability of the denial of substitution. Oak Hill College became the great center for defending substitution. That's why the authors of Pierce for Our Transgression are associated with that school, just so you can keep all of this in terms of your own intellectual order of how all of this lays out. In July of 2005, a symposium was held in London, known not coincidentally as the London Symposium on the Theology of the Atonement. It was sponsored by the London School of Theology, and at that particular symposium, there was an open airing of all of these views. 
That symposium, by the way, is now available in printed form and is also good matter for your reading in order to understand what is at stake in this particular controversy. The Evangelical Alliance in 2005 then modified its statement of faith to affirm the atonement as this, the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross, dying in our place, paying the price of sin and defeating evil, so reconciling us with God. Now, let's just notice very easily what took place here. The controversy was occasioned most pointedly by those who claimed to be evangelical and had even signed the doctrinal basis of the Evangelical Alliance, but they did not want to refer to the substitutionary death of Christ. No, it was more than that. It's just not that they just did not want to refer to it. They openly opposed it and indeed published a work in which they characterized it as a form of divine child abuse. At the end of this process in the Evangelical Alliance, the Alliance by its own reporting, by the way, indicated the vast majority, over 90% of its members, affirmed the substitutionary understanding of the atonement. Nevertheless, they changed the language in their confessional basis to imply substitution rather than to use the word. I wish I could provide more detail and commentary there, but suffice it to say, when you move your confession of faith to be less clear about what you mean to say, you invite not only less clarity, but a continued process of what Charles Spurgeon would call the downgrade of the confession. Concerned about this and determined to defend a penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement not only as acceptable, but as central, Steve Jeffrey, Mike Ovey, and his colleague here wrote the book Pierce for Our Transgressions, Recovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This is what they wrote. They wrote, the colleague of penal substitution states that God gave himself in the person of the Son to suffer instead of us the death, punishment, and curse due to fallen humanity as penalty for sin. This understanding of the cross of Christ stands at the very heart of the gospel. Now, when we fast forward to the present hour, we understand that this controversy is not over. Nor is this controversy isolated to Great Britain. Nor is it even limited to English-speaking theology. It's a controversy that is rampant across the Christian world. But most importantly, we notice that it is a controversy that is more concentrated among those who believe that the entire project of evangelical theology must be revised, especially those who now claim that in a postmodern worldview, we must, in a postmodern age, we must transform the gospel into something more fitting for postmodern categories. In particular, you see now the substitutionary atonement being denied and subverted by many of those associated with the emerging church. For documentation on that, let me suggest that you look especially to uh, D.A. Carson's book, Becoming Conversant with the Emerging Church, where he documents this and provides footnotes that you can easily follow. There are four major categories of objection to the substitutionary atonement. And if you look at the Pierce for Our Transgression book, you'll find that what they do is to take isolated statements that indicate criticisms or complaints about substitution or claims about its, its lack of biblical or theological substance or validity, and they go at each one of them. I want to categorize them in terms of four large groupings of objections to substitutionary atonement. The first is biblical, the second is theological, the third is moral, and the fourth is cultural. These are arbitrary, which is to say that there are a few arguments, if any, that could be theological without being moral or vice versa. But nonetheless, some kind of typology is necessary for our understanding here. 
Those who object on biblical grounds suggest, first of all, that we have misunderstood the scripture in whole or in part. In particular, they argue that we are wrong in arguing for a substitutionary atonement because we have the whole Bible storyline wrong. In other words, you have to go all the way back to the fall and argue all the way forward to the cross and then to God's acts subsequent to the cross in order to understand that a penal substitutionary view misconstrues the Bible storyline. And here's how they believe it has been misconstrued. Some will argue that it is a misconstrual of sin. That sin is not first and foremost an offense against God's righteousness and holiness, but rather it is entry into complicity with the powers of darkness. It is a self-induced exile on the part of the human creature. In getting the Bible storyline wrong, they argue that we misconstrue the nature and character of God. More about that under the theological category. But in particular, they argue that we misread the Bible text having to do with wrath. Their argument is that wherever wrath is referenced in Scripture, it is a natural consequence of sin. Sin brings about its own punishment. This is a thing that comes again and again and again. In particular, they will look at a, at a text like Romans chapter 1, and they will suggest that what Paul is saying there is that sin simply comes with its own punishment. Wrath is being demonstrated or revealed in the necessary consequences of sin. Now, Okay, now McLaren has taken this a step further, by the way, in his new book. When we read in the Bible of a wrathful God, that's just a human misunderstanding of his character. Especially in the Old Testament, basically McLaren says that when we see in Genesis, you know, God acting wrathful or doing or things that just seem really immature, it's because the biblical authors had an immature and undeveloped understanding of God, and therefore the character that they wrote into the Bible, um, you know, that seemed wrathful and things like that, that was just their human uh, misunderstanding in, in uh, of God, and so we can just reject those ideas about God and His wrath outright, uh, because that's just a, a silly way of thinking about God. Dad, you know, no, no, we don't have an angry, wrathful God. We've got, we've got Jesus. See, and Jesus loves everybody. Don't you know the song? Jesus loves the little children. See, he, uh, everybody, all the children of the world. See, all the children. Jesus loves every one of them. And it doesn't matter what religion they practice or what God they believe in. God, you know, that's that's what's going on right now in the emergent circles. Just want to let you know if you haven't been tuning in. All right, we're up on our second break. And after we get back from our second break, then we will listen to the balance of uh, uh, Dr. Moeller's lecture here on why they hate penal substitution. And uh, you don't want to miss it. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith... You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I 
had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and we are in the middle of our Friday light edition of Fighting for the Faith, and we're listening to Dr. Al Mohler. Conference speech he gave a couple of years ago on why do they hate penal substitution. Fantastic and fascinating lecture, by the way. And uh, Mohler never seems to disappoint, so... Without any further ado, we're going to dive back in, and here's the balance of Dr. Mueller's lecture on why they hate penal substitution. Does sin bring its own consequences? Of course. Just ask someone who's struggling with sin. Ask, ask someone who has been victimized by sin. Ask someone who is struggling with their own concept of sin. Ask the Apostle Paul. Ask me. Sin, of course, does come with its own consequences, but those are not the consequences to fear. 
The consequence to fear is the wrath of God poured out upon all unrighteousness. Interestingly, they also argue that sacrifice has been misunderstood. Reading some of these, and again, their argument is that we have misread the Bible storyline. Their argument is that the animal was not being punished. I couldn't help but think of that when Dr. Sproul was describing the goat. I think the goat would have thought he was being punished. (laughs) The argument here is that it is merely a metaphor, a model. It was a symbol, but nothing objective took place. Furthermore, they argue that we misconstrue the biblical text to believe that God actually required the sacrifice. They argue that in terms of misconstruing the scriptural text in whole or in part, we misconstrue divine punishment. They argue that indeed the result of breaking God's law and covenant brings about alienation first and foremost. We are separated from God. We are in an alienated condition. But when looking at the punishments that the Old Testament and New Testament suggest will follow sin... They suggest that this is, again, the necessary outpouring of this, that divine punishment is simply God allowing the natural world and the natural order he has put into place work out its own consequences. Look to particular texts such as Isaiah 53, to the suffering servant. They argue there, interestingly and very revealingly, that the language has to be properly understood so that this is not a suffering for us or on our behalf as a substitute, but is rather an identification with a suffering alongside such that Jesus in the incarnation, answering Anselm's question, cur Deus homo, they answer, God became man in order to identify with us, to suffer along with us, even to the point of the cross, in order to enter into the deepest brokenness of our humanity. By the way, for footnoting that, this is where they become dependent upon figures such as Jürgen Moltmann and, and others. Suggest that we misconstrue prophetic expectation, such that Isaiah in these texts was not looking for one who would redeem people from sin, but rather in historical context was looking for one who would free and liberate merely. That more in a terrestrial concern of political oppression. They argue in terms of biblical complaints that we misconstrue the use of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Suggesting that we are simply reading back on to the Old Testament categories that we wish to imply in the New Testament. And then when we turn to the New Testament, we are reading this as the fulfillment of the Old Testament text we've already reinterpreted in light of the New Testament expectations that we've imported to the text. Did you follow that? Yeah, that's transparent. In fact, I would argue that this is a part of what reveals the the impoverishment of this argument. Because who is better equipped? Even before you come to understand the inerrancy and infallibility and inspiration of every single word of Scripture, just in terms of an historical perspective, who's in a better position to understand the Old Testament? The author of the Gospel of Matthew or a postmodern theology professor with tenure? I'll leave that for your late-night cogitation. (laughs) He suggests that we misread the words of Jesus in terms of his self-understanding. As a matter of fact, Joel Green and Mark Baker argue that in the New Testament we have no direct access 
to Jesus' own self-understanding of the cross and of his death because, quote, he never wrote anything. That, by the way, is a reminder to us that the denial of penal substitution is never naked. To use Luther's expression about doctrine, it is always connected to other doctrines. They misconstrue, they argue that we misconstrue the language of the New Testament concerning the wrath of God and God's disposition towards sinners. They argue that we misconstrue the necessity of a sacrifice for sin as payment. They suggest that we misconstrue the victory achieved by Christ. They suggest that we minimize the resurrection in a focus upon the cross. They suggest that we miss the fact that the main message, the central message of Jesus is nonviolence. Now, interestingly enough, got to highlight that. The, I, I kid you not, the emergence and the liberals, their picture of Jesus is Gandhi, a Jewish first century Gandhi, a Jewish first century Martin Luther King Jr. That's their view of Jesus. It's all about nonviolence and, and identifying with us in our pain and brokenness and suffering. Not dying on the cross for our sins, being pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Not that his blood purchased us, but that, well, J- Jesus was identifying with us and, and, you know, and showing and using McLaren's term. He was, he was basically allowing himself to be mutilated so that we would once and for all see the errors and the evils of empire. And that we would no longer ever again subscribe to the meta narratives and framing stories of empire, but again, but defect to Jesus's new kingdom of a benevolent society here on earth that basically wraps itself up in the God's ever expanding concentric circles of inclusiveness. And if you think I'm making any of that up, spend some time with emergence. I got all of it from them. Gone are our repentance and the forgiveness of sins and Christ dying on the cross for our sins. And instead, we've got Jesus basically as a first century prototype of Gandhi. That's what we're talking about. There are some who, in rejecting a penal substitutionary view of the atonement, simply say, all right, the Bible does teach it. But we are not going to believe it. It's simply unacceptable in the 21st century to believe this. I want to say this carefully, but I want to say it honestly. I have far more respect in terms of intellectual integrity for someone who says, yes, I acknowledge that's what the Bible teaches and I'm just going to reject it, rather than someone that takes the text and goes through all these gymnastics in order to try to say it doesn't say what it clearly says. In terms of theological objections, the central objection has to do with the rendering of God made necessary by a penal substitutionary view of the atonement. This is centered on the fact that God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice define his love, even as his love defines his righteousness and his justice and his wrath. The entire concept of God's wrath is completely unthinkable to some theologians and figures here in the 21st century, even as we might argue it has been considered unacceptable by figures, especially heretics of times past. The whole idea of retributive justice and punishment for sin is something that's rejected. Socinus rejected it. Now Steve Chalk rejects it in the sense that he says that God orders us to be peaceful 
and to resist violence. Therefore, to suggest that he requires violence as punishment for sin makes God hypocritical. Suggests that this is limited essentially to the idea of divine revenge, punishing sin by punishing sinners, or by substitution, punishing sin by punishing the sinless. One of the figures behind all of this is a professor now retired by the name of Walter Wink. As you look at the emerging church literature, you will see this name come up again and again and again. In his book, Engaging the Powers, he suggests that the sole message of the cross is the victory of nonviolence over violence. And therefore, the entire understanding of the atonement has to be redefined so as to take away any necessity of the death of Christ. And Christ must be presented as victim who overcomes by his innocence rather than as the second person of the Trinity, the sinless Son of God who became incarnate in order to humble himself, taking on the form of a man and suffering even unto death. I want you to hear directly some of these theological objections and just for sake of time, I want to limit them to sections taken from Pinnock and Brow and Green and Baker. Brace yourselves. This is from Unbounded Love, Clark Pinnock, Robert Brow. We have to overcome the rational theory of the atonement based on Latin judicial categories that has dominated Western theology. It demotes the resurrection from its central place and changes the cross from scandal to abstract theory. It makes things sound... Just listen to this, please. You've got to hear this. It makes things sound as if God wanted Jesus to die and predestined Pilate and Caiaphas to make it happen. Their next words, surely not. Jesus is God's beloved Son. The Father and the Son are not divided or in opposition. Listen to how much truth is there. It's filled with truth. Jesus is God's beloved Son. There is no division or opposition between the Father and the Son. But the truth is so corrupted when it is suggested that the implications of the fact that Jesus is God's beloved Son and that the Father and the Son are not divided or in opposition means that God did not want Jesus to die and that God did not predestine Pilate and Caiaphas to make it happen. This is what they say. The cross demonstrates the compassion of God. Through the surrender of Jesus, God seeks out lost sinners, enters into their forsakenness, and brings them into an unbreakable fellowship. They say this, let's try to set our thinking about the atonement in personal, not legalistic terms. The real issue is a broken relationship, not a breach of contract. Before the cross happened, God loved sinners and wanted to save them. The cross did not purchase love for sinners. It is we, not God, who needed to be changed in attitude. The problem of salvation is our need to be delivered from the power of evil and become people who love God again. That explains the cross? They go on to say, Christ is not appeasing God's wrath. God is not sadistically crucifying his beloved son. We're not talking retribution or criminal proceedings. The cross is a revelation of a compassionate God. Suffering love is the way of salvation for sinners. Jesus takes the pain of divine love on himself in solidarity with all of us. This tells us that God remains faithful to his creatures even though they have abandoned him. He desires that they live and not die. This is how God justifies us. 
One of the things I hope you will see is that the doctrine of penal substitution and the doctrine of justification by faith alone are inextricably linked. They say this is what tells us that God remains faithful to his creatures even though they have abandoned him. He desires that they live and not die. We must realize that Jesus did not die in order to change God's attitude towards us but to change our attitude toward God. God who took the initiative of reconciling the world does not need reconciling. It is in us that the decisive change is needed. Now they have to explain exactly what the cross then did. They go on on page 104 of Unbounded Love to say the cross has an objective side too. They even say it's possible to speak of propitiation in non-legal terms, where they mean non-substitutionary terms. They say in love we confront at the cross, not wrath against us. It's love that we confront. What kind of impact would the cross then have upon God? The propitiation of his wrath? No. It is for God an educational experience. I kid you not. They argue that in experiencing suffering through the incarnation, Jesus Christ as a divine human being, God learned how to identify with us. And thus... That is the change that was wrought in God. Green and Baker, in their book, Recovering the Scandal of the Cross, when they finally get to the heart of their opposition, they say this, Understanding sin narrowly as an infraction of the laws of God falls short of the biblical account of sin. This is perhaps troublesome enough, but linking this view of sin with a Western penal view of justice also proposes and for some even requires a concept of God that is incongruent with the biblical witness. Now notice the language there. I hope as you read this literature and as you hear it, you'll begin to understand. When, there, when you hear phrases such as incongruent with the biblical witness, please, I beg you, check the Bible. That's what Pierce for Our Transgressions is all about. Okay, let's check. Of course, they say many proponents of penal substitution recognize that God is not foremost an angry God who desires to punish humans, and they attempt to explain that God is foremost a merciful God, a God of love, even though the penal substitutionary model of the atonement would lead one to think otherwise. They go on and say that there are some misconstruals of the doctrine, but the fact is that the doctrine is simply too damaging. That They say this, that more sophisticated understandings of substitution, they say, have not proven sufficient to protect people in the pew from the damaging effects of the image of God this model communicates and seems to demand. Tragically, many Christians and former believers, they put in parenthesis, still live in fear of a God who seems so intent on punishing and much less willing to forgive than folks we encounter in day-to-day life. You see, there is the root of the theological complaint. God doesn't condone sin. There's a difference between human forgiveness and divine forgiveness, and this is central to understanding the Scripture. We can forgive wrongs done to us, but we cannot atone for them. And first and foremost, these are not offenses against our righteousness, for we have none. To model this is to anthropomorphize deity, to model this on human forgiveness, and to suggest that God, according to the penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement, is less forgiving than our neighbors, is a slander against Christ and his work. 
Very quickly, I must speak of the moral objections. In terms of the moral objections to the cross, we come back to the accusations of such things as divine child abuse. Donald Capps at Princeton Theological Seminary has done a lot of work on this, trying to demonstrate that the problem of child abuse in the society is at least partly, if not very deeply rooted in a substitutionary understanding of the cross such that children are supposed to suffer in redemptive suffering. This is the logic that seems to fit many mentalities in a postmodern world. Many who follow along the lines of these moral objections are following the French philosopher who now teaches and literary scholar that teaches now at Stanford University, René Girard, who suggests in his book The Scapegoat and Things Hidden Since the Foundations of the World and Violence and the Sacred that human conflict comes down to what he calls victimage. He suggests that crude, primitive religion included sacrifice through what it called the scapegoat mechanism. He suggests that the New Testament subverts what the Old Testament begins to undermine, which is the entire sacrificial system, suggests that what Jesus accomplished was dying as a scapegoat in order to end the scapegoat mechanism, in so doing because he was innocent, as Pilate said, I find no fault in him, as the king and others in the empire would say, I find no fault in him. Jesus dies as the innocent scapegoat recognized to be innocent in order to bring an end to the scapegoat project. You look at that and you say, that sounds so foreign. What in the world could that have to do with contemporary evangelical theology? Trace footnotes. See how often Girard, his works, and the scapegoat mechanism appear, especially among emerging church types who want to reject the penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement. Let's get... Uh, you know, I got I got to highlight this. I've said it once, and I'm going to say it again. If you really want to know what the emergents believe, read their footnotes and their end notes. I learned a long time ago the way to crack open uh, McLaren's uh, theology isn't to read just the main body of a text in a book that he's written, but to look at his footnotes. When you look at his footnotes... And you track down what's ticking underneath the hood of his uh, of his books, you realize, wow, this guy is basically running with a band of wolf liberals, John Dominic Cross and Marcus Borg. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So, just want to highlight that when you read an, a book by an emergent, read their notes. They tell you what they believe. And we continue this clear. Gerard says that the Old Testament is wrong. That the sacrificial system was a crude anthropological borrowing from primitive society. He argues that even in the Old Testament you can see Israel grow in moral revulsion against the sacrifice system so that when you Making very clear statements that God doesn't demand sacrifice. You can see how they're distancing. Steve Chalk, in the debate in London in 2005, used the same argument, saying that the prophets began to understand the error of the sacrificial system as well. Just consider what that says about the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. Susan Brooks Thistlethwaite, well-known feminist theologian, has suggested a complaint against the substitutionary atonement, which you will recognize, suggesting, and I just want to read this. This is from Time magazine. Countless women have told me that their priest or minister had advised them, that is, good Christian women, to accept beatings by their husbands as, quote, Christ accepted the cross. 
and used a metaphor or an emphasis on the suffering of Jesus to the exclusion of his teaching in order to support violence. I don't know what you do with this. But I want to ask a journalistic question. Where are these countless women so that we can find their pastors? Let me state pointedly, I don't believe this. Am I saying it could never happen? No. But is the major effect of substitutionary atonement to lead to wife beating? Just consider what this means in terms of its source and its logic. Cultural objections come down, and here Green and Baker are very clear on this, saying it's just irrelevant. Pinnock and Brown suggesting that a new theology has to be compelling, that the old theology held by evangelicals doesn't present a compelling sense of truth anymore to postmodern people. And if we're going to be related to them and relevant, then we've got to come up with something compelling. The word relevant is exactly what Green and Baker are using, are using in suggesting that the whole idea of penal substitution doesn't apply to people who don't think they're sinners in the first place. And they straightforwardly say, you just can't tell people that they're sinners. It's going to be pretty hard to preach if you don't. If you intend to preach the gospel. They suggest also in terms of cultural objection that it's just too individualistic, the penal substitutionary understanding of the gospel. Why do they hate it so? Well, the Bible becomes an embarrassment. You've got God ordering things that are considered, in terms of punishment for sin, completely unacceptable to people in a postmodern society. And so you'll find some of the people who reject the penal substitutionary atonement rejecting the fact that God would order the execution or killing of anyone for any reason in terms of punishment for sin, or that God would require a sacrifice for sin, even in the Old Testament, the sacrifice of an animal, much less in the New Testament, the self-sacrifice of himself through Christ and his substitutionary atonement. You see how they reject an understanding of God. They reject His wrath. They reject His holiness in the sense of requiring a punishment for sin, His righteousness and His justice. They reject, in terms of humanity, the imputation of Adam's sin to us and the necessity through a substitutionary atonement of the grace of God demonstrated in the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the elect. They reject it on the basis of salvation. They want to argue that it has more to do with enlightenment, moral improvement, a surrendering of claims to power, and a breaking of the empire system in terms of political power and the establishment of the kingdom of God over against earthly kingdoms. I want to suggest to you that one of the most important things you need to understand is that with the rejection of the penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement, you've really undercut a major dimension of the exclusivity of the gospel. Because if all that is required is a change in us, and some symbol or act in order to prove to us that God is actually merciful. If it's not about God's righteousness and justice and requiring a penalty for sin, the only adequate penalty being Jesus the Christ, then why not some other belief system or some other religion being a way to at least signal to us that we must change our disposition to God? Then again, don't be surprised. May the same people make the same arguments on the same doctrines. Thus, justification by faith alone is undercut by a denial of the penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement. Let me footnote that. Steve Holmes at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, brilliant article on that. It undercuts the church and undercuts eschatology because there is no hell. You will find, or at least hell in terms of the just punishment of unrepentant sinners by God with his wrath outpoured upon all unrighteousness. 
Sally Brown in a book, Crosstalk, says the problem for us who reject the substitutionary atonement is that it keeps rearing its head over and over again because you get Christians together, they'll find a way to sing it. (laughs) The pastoral implications of this very quickly. First, the cross is central to Christian preaching. The gospel and the concept of substitution is central to understanding the cross. Second, there's always more to the cross than any one conceptual framework can bear. The New Testament very clearly articulates this, but it is never less than its central message of substitution. Third, there's no way to modify the gospel without repudiating the gospel. I didn't say there's no way to modify our presentation of the gospel. I said there's no way to modify the gospel without repudiating the gospel. Fourth, there's no way to present the gospel without speaking directly of our sin and God's gracious provision through Christ. Full satisfaction of God's justice. Fifth, a therapeutic age demands a therapeutic gospel, which means that we really are the problem when we do not want to be and will gladly grab and clasp any straw that argues that we are victims rather than perpetrators of the great crime. Sixth, penal substitution is the only adequate biblical explanation for how God is both holy and righteous, is both just and merciful, as Romans 3 makes clear, is both just and the justifier. Seventh, we must consider carefully legitimate criticisms of any expression of doctrine. And in this light, finally, I want to argue that at times we have argued for an overly individualistic understanding of the atonement. It's never less than that, but let's remember it's about God's big purpose to bring glory to his name through the creation of a people purchased for his son, by his son, as the bride. Not merely a person, but people. Eighth and last... Sinners desperately need to hear the great truth of the gospel and be saved from the wrath to come. God's redeemed people must exult and rest in the sure confidence that God will indeed bring all things to completion on that day. His perfect satisfaction demonstrated on the day of the Lord as it was demonstrated on the cross. And we must live in hope even as we pray, even so, Lord, come quickly. In his memoir, When a Crocodile Eats the Sun, Peter Godwin writes of growing up in South Africa. And he tells the story of how many Westerners, Europeans, and for that matter, Americans, in terms of Western culture, would come to Africa and miss the obvious. He tells the story of Prince Philip at a state dinner in South Africa. Waiter leans over, the African waiter, and asks Prince Philip, he says, Would you like the beef? Or the duck. Prince Philip says, tell me about the duck. The waiter looks at him a moment and says, it's like a chicken, but it swims. We can understand how human beings can so easily miss the obvious. We dare not miss the obvious. We we dare not miss what is central. Tell me about the gospel. Let's answer 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of what you accomplished for us through Christ on the cross. We pray above all things, not only to be grateful, but faithful in our stewardship of this great truth. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Great lecture from Dr. Muller. And I think what we might next week we might cover... Uh, uh, the other one of the other lectures on penal substitution to kind of round it out because I think it would help to kind of fill in some of the skeleton on that particular outline. But again, great lecture. Dr. Muller has just a firm grasp on what it is as a Christian church that we are fighting against and up against. And by the way, the whole emerging thing, you know, their coyness, their whimsicalness, their refusal to answer direct questions or take a hard stand or come up with a doctrinal position and everything like that. That was because the entire time the emerging church was just a, a form of liberalism. So what they were trying to do was be missional by putting away their uh, their liberalism, hiding it so that it wouldn't get in the way. But it's come back out. And so now we know what they are. All right, need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us a few ways. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, click on the Join Our Crew button. It's a mere $6.95 a month to join our crew. And when you do, you get access to our Pirate Co., which is a growing treasure trove of theological resources from across the uh, ages that will help you grow deeper in Christ-centered theology, apologetics, and doctrine. Good stuff there at the Cove. Uh, really, that's our way of saying thank you to you for joining our crew. And, of course, if you'd like to uh, you know, set the amount that you would like to donate yourself, you can do so by clicking on our Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? Would love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, well, pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his blood shed on the cross, penal substitutionally, if you would, for you and for your sins. Amen. Amen.